Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. We brought on a foreigner. It's great. We had uh, Alan Bakari, who's an investigative tech reporter at Breitbart, and we talked about all things big tech. But before we get to that, I want to encourage you, as always, go to AmericanMoment.org. There you'll find information about events we're hosting. You'll see Amcanon, which is some of the best pieces that we've assembled from across the web and beyond. Uh, and you'll find stuff about Summit, a conference on American statecraft, and much, much more. As always, if you have anything that you want to talk about with us, our emails are in uh, our, our, our on our about page. Reach out to us if you're in an organization in Washington and you have intel you want to share with us, or if you're just looking to connect with other people who think like uh, the speakers that we have on this podcast and believe in the ideas we talk about in this podcast, don't forget to reach out. We just came back from a couple of conferences and events in a row over the last week or so, and we've just been so incredibly uh, you know, enthused and excited by how many of you come up to us to talk to us about how much you love the podcast, how much it's helped you think about these issues, and what you want to do to maximize your influence to ensure that, as our mission statement says, they get implemented. It was kind of crazy. Like We just came from uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute uh, the Future of American Political Economy Conference. I think that's what it was called. Yeah. Um, and it was crazy how many people we actually had come up to us and say, you're Nick and Sarab from Moment <laughs> of Truth. And they'd almost like say it in a whisper. Like they were like, yeah. really? Like yeah. it's you? It's some is not. It's, it's uh, illegal information. But anyway, uh, so uh, we had on a, a great great guest today. Alam is a young, talented, hardworking, and interesting guy. Um, he is the investigative tech reporter at Breitbart News, and in 2018, he stunned the media and the world when he obtained and published the Google Tape, a one-hour recording of Google's top executives reacting to the 2016 Trump election and declaring their intention to make the populist movement a blip in history. Uh, he also obtained the Good Censor, an internal Google document admitting to censorship, Facebook's list of so called hate agents and YouTube search blacklists. His work has replaced, uh, pra received praise from Donald Trump Jr., Fox News, uh, Tucker Carlson, Ezra Levant, uh, and he lives in Washington, D.C., although my understanding is for not much longer. And he is also uh, the august author of Hashtag Deleted, Big Text Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election which they did. So uh, we had a fantastic episode. Uh, it was more conversational than I think any episode we've had so far yet, uh, because Alam's and he's just an engaging guy and he, he posed hard questions to us too. Uh, and so we we had a fantastic time talking about everything from obviously big tech censorship, some of the specific stories he's broken, some of the problems he has with modern GOP proposals to fight big tech, ranging from things like antitrust to some of the bills that are being proposed uh, when it comes to advertising and journalism. Uh, he's a heterodox contrarian guy. He's an interesting guy. I got to indulge a little bit in my uh, my Gamergate uh, uh, pet issue. Uh, it's just a fantastic episode, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, we'll now go to Alan Bakari. Howdy, Alan. Thank you for being on the podcast. Hello, guys. Good to be on. Uh, we always like to start with how people got to the point where they are today. You have a little bit of a different accent than most of our podcast guests, so I take it that there's a bit of a story. How'd you end up at the point where you're reporting on tech, working for Breitbart in the United States? Tell us the story. 
Indeed. Well, uh, you know, I, uh, I I lived a very online existence in my uh, in my younger years. I would say uh, I grew up at a time when the internet was, you know, I think as the internet was supposed to be, it was a very free and open place. Uh, you know, I, I you know fond memories my teenage years. You know, being on you know bulletin boards and message boards where it was a completely freewheeling environment, mostly anonymous. People could say what was on their mind. And then, uh, you know, around 2013, 2014, we started to see all of this start to change. We started to see a growing hostility towards free speech on the Internet, especially as more mainstream journalists came into contact with the, uh, the actual consequences of free speech and their comment section and being criticized online. That's when we started to first see the complaints about, you know, tr- so-called trolls, so-called harassing journalists. And I could sort of sort of see in that like the beginnings of a backlash against online free speech, which, uh, um, you know, came to a head in various online controversies in 2014 and 2015. And that's how I started uh, working for Breitbart. And uh, Breitbart founded uh, its tech vertical in 2015, which was way before the issue of tech censorship was on anyone's radar because tech censorship didn't really kick off until 2016 and the Trump election. Now I would say it's on everyone's radar. It's like a top issue of Republicans. But, uh, you know, that's that's progress. We've made progress, I think, but we've still got a bit a bit of a ways to go because I think many Republicans don't understand why we're against big tech. They know we have to be against big tech. They know we have to do things, but they're sort of flailing around because they don't really know, understand why that is, What what why big tech is bad. So yeah. as someone that's really well versed on the big tech issue and 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 the history of big tech i mean prior to 2014 2015 what what were some of the warning signs i mean uh, even before that and and what are some things like historically that kind of laid the groundwork for the way that people not only use the internet but you know how government and big corporations started to censor them well, I think uh, one of the biggest warning signs was the way journalists started responding to their comment sections in 2013 and 2014. If you look at earlier years, uh, you know, like the tw- 2008 to 2012 period, for example, you had newspapers like The Guardian, very left-wing newspaper, which were very much in favor of comment sections. They said, you know, this is democratizing, we're giving our readers a voice. But uh, what they started to realize when they gave their readers a voice, their readers would often say things they didn't really like to hear, (laughs) Uh, especially when they published really stupid articles about, uh, you know, systemic sexism and racism. Clotted cream is racist. Exactly. Yeah. And then they, you know, then they sort of, you know, scrolling down to the comment section and seeing, oh wow, these these our readers actually hate us. And that's when you started to see terms like, you know, no, don't never read the comments. You know, those, those started to become popular terms amongst journalists in that era. So that's when that was like the first warning sign that I saw that this backlash against free speech on the web was coming. But you can actually go back further into history. You can look at any period of time where there's been a revolution in the means of communication, and you can always see the. Vest- interests in society that uh, enjoyed a privileged position in the previous system um, try and suppress the new forms of communications which are typically used by dissidents you saw this with the rise of mass literacy and you know newspapers that were targeted at the masses and not the elites at the end of the 19th century that's when you started to see the term uh, yellow journalism emerge yellow journalism was like the, uh, the the fake news or the disinformation of its day it was used to discredit these new newspapers uh, which included Joseph Pulitzer's newspapers, uh, inc- included uh, Hearst's newspapers uh, that were targeted at the masses and not elites. 
Uh, and obviously there were massive backlashes against the printing press in Europe as well. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. And so the the antecedent, I think, for our current moment in tech, and, and I've made the argument the antecedent for our entire modern political age, uh, and it, it had to do with a lot of the reasons I've got politically involved as well was sort of the controversies around Gamergate um, in, in, in the early 2010s, um, where you had, you know, figures in, in the games journalism space, uh, specifically taking advantage of the positions of power they had atop of prestigious institutions to essentially lie to people to, you know, paint, uh, you know, uh, people as, you know, rubes and incels and and that they were evil um and and it sort of created an entire population that experienced just how nasty politics can be and how dishonest um you know our ruling class can be for the first time walk us through sort of what you were seeing as sort of someone who felt like you were part of that community but were also Mm. uh, entering the journalism space well gamergate was a pretty pivotal moment because you know it kind of it's easy to understand in retrospect. We see all these controversies about athletes kneeling at the Olympics or you know, at the NFL, you know, virtue signaling in various, you know, sporting, you know, arenas. Gamergate was like was essentially the same thing, but in video games. But it was it was particularly important, I think, because it was the first one of those sort of controversies that hit the mainstream, and it was also a controversy that specifically affected millennials. This was the first time that millennials had like a, a serious political divide, a serious disagreement over the direction of politics. Up until that point, millennials had been in lockstep with the Obama movement and the Democratic Party, uh, but when you know insane feminists and social justice warriors started started saying, you know, you're you're evil and sexist for liking X, Y, and Z video game. Then I was like, you know, hold on, what, what what's going on here? You're coming after our hobby, the, you know, the thing that we grew up with. And that's a very personal sort of thing. You know, it's affected millions and millions of people, which is why it's sort of a big story that went on for, uh, for a year. And it was also, uh, you know, one of those, it, it fed that uh, growing backlash against online free speech because this was, again, a battle between you know, ordinary people on the internet and, you know, mainstream journalists. Right. And, and that, that point is so interesting to me because I, I, I see it as, I mean, it got to the point, especially when I was in college, when I was helping, you know, uh, raise up, you know, new campus activists and everything, people who were coming and, you know, they were conservative, they wanted to be involved in politics so many of them had become politically awakened through that process. I mean, it, it seemed like the first political event of so many young people's lives is because politics used to be this thing that was entirely distinct and separate from their world. It was something adults and their grandparents were talking about. It had to do with taxes. It had to do with, you know, just these things that were very distant. And then all of a sudden, politics had been attenuated to a very personal thing that they cared about. Um, are you seeing a lot of people who who first got interested in politics uh then stay involved now and is it the basis for for newer political movements oh yes i mean if you look at many of the political figures uh you know some of the millennial political figures like the youtubers especially uh they became big names during gamergate because that was the first time that as you said many millennials became politically awakened uh you know many millennials were actually not political some millennials were not political before then and you know that was when it you know affected this you know area of their lives uh one thing i think that I want to ask is, um, you know, why why has the rest of, you know, the, the conservative movement been kind of so late to this issue, to, to big tech? You know, we see a lot of uh, 
conservatives and Republicans talking about it now, but this definitely wasn't the case in 2015 and 2016. So um, why were you so early and why were they so late? Well, I think it was just, uh, you know, the many, uh, many politicians, you know, just simply don't get the tech issue because they didn't grow up with tech. You know, many of them, you know, still aren't, you know, that great at using tech. So it was like a very, uh, you know, the, most politicians today are still of the cable news generation. OK, they think, you know, the most important thing is cable news. And actually, Trump probably thinks cable news. He certainly seems to treat cable news as more important than Facebook and Twitter, or at least he did until he got banned from those platforms. Um and I think you know that was the big that was that was a big problem there. Uh, the bigger problem now, I think, actually, is that uh, while we have made progress in terms of Republicans agreeing that big tech is a problem, it's the, you have to understand why big tech is a problem before you can solve it. The reason why big tech is a problem is because we have this insane group of people that dominate Western culture and politics that are totally opposed to Western civilization, that are, you know, racist predominantly against white people, but, you know, other races occasionally get caught in the crossfire, that are sexist, that are anti-masculinity, that are against the notion of objective truth, uh, that are, you know, are determined to cause division, that are against the nation, that are against the nation's history, want to tear it down. And uh, these people have been in charge for decades. And they're extremely unpopular. So the only way, you know, you hit on this point as well, they, the majority of Americans are completely opposed to the, you know, these people's views on the opposite side of almost everything. Uh, affirmative action, for example, has never been popular. You look at all the mm -hmm. polling going back decades, and yet it still dominates American society because, of the, because these people have had a stranglehold over the uh, channels of information for so long. And the internet was a grave threat to that monopoly on information that they have. And the only way they could put the genie back in the bottle was through tech censorship. And that's why big tech is a problem. Uh, I would actually say, and you know, this is, uh, this is a contrarian take, I am more pro-big tech than big tech. Because what big tech did before 2016 before they introduced you know these these you know these vast apparatuses to censor disinformation and hate speech the algorithms that they created you know on youtube on, and on facebook were fantastic they were great <laughs> yeah. you know the, these were an existential threat to the mainstream media uh, if we could turn back the clock and get the facebook we had in 2015 and get the youtube we had in 2015 um that would be that would be the ideal solution, frankly. Uh, I think big the the way the attitude of big tech and their leaders, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, all of these people, um, after the Trump election was you know kind of like a Dr. Frankenstein type thing. You know, they were afraid of their own creation. What have we done? I'm not afraid of what big tech created. I want you know the algorithms that big tech created to be uh, to be unleashed for them to you know fulfill their purpose, which is to destroy the mainstream media. And because when you think about it. The way big tech operated in, in 2015, when there was like a genuinely even playing field on social media, uh, you could throw up a blog and write a really powerful article and have that article get more views than a New York Times article in 24 hours. Whereas the New York Times has to pay someone like $100,000 a year, you know, a professional journalist. If that had been allowed to continue, like the business model of the New York Times would be, uh, you know, gone. Yeah. And likewise with cable uh, cable news, you saw YouTube is getting 
in their basements with webcams getting uh, bigger audiences than, you know, cable news hosts with your multi-million dollar budgets. That was unsustainable as well for the mainstream media. So they needed Google and YouTube and Facebook to favor them in their algorithms. That's why they put such extraordinary pressure on them after 2016. Yeah, it seems like uh, the, the globalization was the vehicle by which international elites were able to consolidate power and and tip the scales in favor of themselves vis-a-vis the people in a way that was uh you know that was novel right it was it's definitely a phenomenon of the last 30 to 40 years and then the internet uh, and specifically modern social media was the way to re-democratize to wrench power back and they got so fat and happy on that status quo where they had globalism, but people weren't able to actually band together to express their displeasure of the ruling class that the second the scales balanced back, they were like, wait a second. No, we can't have this. It's terrible. Mm. Um, this ties into my least favorite bill of this uh, this current session, which is the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. Uh, I've written about it quite extensively at Breitbart. This is this is a perfect example of what happens when Republicans understand they need to do something against big tech, but they don't understand why. Yeah, This is a bill that unquestionably makes the problem worse because far worse. It's like it's, 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 a, it's a terrible, terrible bill because what it does is it, it um, you know, journalism competition and preservation. This is a bill that has been advanced by the big media industry, which, as, as we we're discussing, recognizes the existential threat posed by big tech if big tech was you know, true to its original principles of freedom and openness. And the bill aims to entrench the trend of the past five years, which has been the collusion between big tech and big media, the former support artificially supporting the latter and propping them up and protecting them from competition and pre- protecting them from failure, which they deserve, by the way. Uh, the JCPA essentially allows big media companies to form a cartel uh, with the specific purpose of collectively negotiating with the tech companies. Mm-hmm. So it gives the force <clears throat> of law to this, you know, poisonous dynamic where big media bands together and demands special favors from the tech companies because they're afraid of that massive competition they faced on the internet uh, before the age of uh, online censorship. Well, so let's talk about the bad actors here let's let's name some names i mean what what you know activists pundits um whoever who's been wrong since the beginning on this and who even if they're you know braying about big tech now is still getting it wrong well i mean ken buck has really been a mixed bag he championed the uh, the journalism competition and preservation act and uh, one of the reasons why I think many Republicans got on board with it because is because he had you know News Corp lobbyists going around. One of the biggest, and you know this just shows this is not really this is not entirely a partisan thing because it's big media companies. You know News Corp has many you know conservative media companies, uh, but and yet it's working with uh, every other media outlet in pushing these laws, not just in America but also in Australia and in Europe, that would essentially force big tech companies to prop up their failing business models and um, and protect the news industry from online competition, which is obscene when you think about it, because, you know, a CNN or a or a Fox News, you know, these have these have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to hand, you know, billions. These are international media companies. And despite that huge advantage in resources, they're still unable to compete with like, you know, random YouTubers and random bloggers. And they want special handouts from the big tech companies and special favors and the algorithms as well. That's insane. That's the opposite of promoting competition. 
So I want to drive into this a little bit. The, so specifically what these uh, journalism companies are are interested in is uh, cratering rates of, of advertising, right? That, that uh, you know, digital-based advertising has essentially become... Um, unprofitable in the way uh, in the way that it was maybe five to ten years ago where uh, you know they, they were able to you know basically make putting up the same article that goes in the New York print mag- New York Times print magazine up online and, and make enough money to make it sustainable based on the business model they already have but that that ad model was not there's kind of two sides to this, right? There's the monetization and then there's the product itself. The product these companies offer itself is what is at threat from the bloggers who can uh, give a more honest opinion, often do more real reporting and provide more real information to the people. Or it was a threat until big tech started calling all those bloggers, you know, disinformation and conspiracy theorists. Right, But but the monetization side of this is a much bigger problem. It has to do with the economics of the internet, period. Um, is that just kind of a, a product of how the internet has evolved to the point where it is now? I mean, is is there no putting the genie back in the bottle? Is there is there anything to be said for the fact that these companies truly aren't able to to monetize content that they are putting real effort into in some ways in the way that they were, were once able to? I think that's crocodile tears from the from the media industry. The media industry has actually benefited enormously from the internet, and even with the decline in advertising revenue. Uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post are boasting about the massive, massive amounts of revenue they're taking from subscriptions. Hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, like absolutely, it's, it's been a huge windfall for them, actually. Um, I think what they're really concerned about is long-term competition from, you know, independent creators on YouTube and blogs and on independent websites. Because if you look at the uh, the demographics of the mainstream media, you know, the people who watch cable news very, very very, very old, getting older. Mm-hmm. People who watch YouTube, very, very young, getting younger. So that's that's the long-term thing they're worried about, which is why they're not just talking about ad revenue and making money from Google and Facebook. They're also talking about, you know, disinformation. Right. And I and I think that the, the best case against what I just said is the fact that they're equally braying and apoplectic about something like Substack, yes. which is not, you know, about ad rates or anything. It's just they, they see their cartel being threatened. And, and and in the case of Substack, funnily enough, from their own people, their own, you know, star reporters who, you know, maybe the wrong, you know, race or gender to to perfectly fit the diversity of the master that they want. And these writers realize, you know, I'm Matt Taibbi or I'm, you know, Matt Iglesias or I'm, you know, Andrew Sullivan. I can make a lot more money off on my own and and I won't get harassed every time I, you know, say even a slightly centrist opinion anymore. Um, yes, has, and when, when these, yeah, I mean, you notice when, you, when these people slip away into independence on Substack or wherever else, their their views change because they don't have those, <laughs> you know, insane progressive editors watching over them. Well, and here's the thing, too, that, like, everything on Substack is fundamentally more interesting than anything on, you know, the front page of the New York Times. I mean, I subscribe to... Man, my uh, fiance probably thinks I'm spending too much money on Substack. But I mean, really, I, I I mean that seriously. It's more interesting than just about anything else you'll find online. I mean, there are several people, uh, you know, who former high profile journalists um, who have great Substacks that I subscribe to, like Glenn Greenwald is one. But there are also like several anonymous Twitter accounts that also do their own Substacks that that I follow and are, are and are like 
way more interesting than anything you'll read in the Washington Post or watch on CNN or whatever. So mm-hmm. I suppose the free market solution to this is uh, journalists simply be more interesting. <laughs> and you know, the the anonymous blogs are interesting. I think that's a function of their anonymity. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, kind of bothers me a little bit about the uh, the conservative alt tech space is that, you know, they're always trying to clone Twitter or clone uh, <coughs> clone Facebook or, or, or YouTube or whatever. And that's good. I'm glad those alternatives exist. But I think uh, conservatives who really want to innovate in tech in a way that helps political dissidents, they need to innovate in the area of anonymity because there hasn't been, there hasn't been any innovation in that space for decades. Uh, you know, Fortune and Reddit barely been updated. Um, and uh, actually, you know, I, I'm going to come to this question by come to this topic, you know, in a roundabout way by asking you guys a question. What's your most radical political view? Oh, we've answered this on the podcast before. Neither of us actually gave our real answer on this, that there are things that we right. believe that you, are more you, radical. And I'm, you, yes, you're correct. <laughs> you, you got it. That's yeah. what I was driving at, because I think the correct answer to that question is, this podcast is going out on the internet. I can't possibly tell you what my really, what my actual most radical political yeah. opinion is. Because oh, I do have more if radical I did, ones than that. If, <laughs> if I did, I'd get fired, I'd get banned from CPAC, from TPUSA, Republican politicians would condemn me. If I were a member of Congress, I get stripped of my political committee assignments. That so yeah, cannot tell you by by what my actually most radical political opinion is. But I can if I'm anonymous. Yeah. Mm. If I'm completely anonymous and I and I'm confident that I won't be unmasked, then I can. So you guys start a four chan thread and I'll tell you my most radical <laughs> political opinion. Yeah. Well, so this this is why I think you know conservatives who are working in the tech space and want to um, create a create platforms that aren't just copies of Twitter, but actually do something that Twitter doesn't, mm-hmm. should focus on anonymity and, you know, really making it impossible to unmask people. Well, and that's the thing about a lot of these, like, anonymous platforms now is they're not even that anonymous anymore, especially the ones that are run by, you know, more left-wing founders. I mean, Reddit comes to mind for me. A lot of people, whenever something controversial gets posted, they're going through all your post history, trying to find out who you are. And there are several cases of people, you know, getting doxxed for for having the wrong opinions or thinking Mm. the wrong thing. I mean, and I think you're totally right. If we want to have, um, you know, true anonymity and be able to talk about these things, I mean, we, we, we need to build our own, you know, solution for this. Yeah. And and this is, this actually goes to, I I have complicated views on the question of anonymity because I agree that, I mean, I I just got back from the Claremont Institute Publius Fellowship and like anyone who thinks that anonymity is un-American should go talk to the founding fathers because they were literally writing the Federalist Papers pseudonymously. Like what a ridiculous idea. They were literally Fed posting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, um, But that being said, my recommendation to a young person interested in politics right now is not to make an anonymous Twitter account because I'm not convinced that that's actually anonymous. Like, and, and so like they're, they're actually like big tech. You currently do not have a lot of ways unless you're extremely careful to be truly anonymous. And so everything you say online should operate off the assumption that eventually like Brian Stelter is going to get really angry and like send 30 CNN employees to dig up your entire history, post it, and your career is going to be affected by it. Like, that, that, that is, uh, that is prudent advice. I get into this in, in my book deleted. It's actually extremely difficult to remain anonymous if someone's actually determined to unmask you. Yeah. Uh, good, a good, uh, example from a few years ago is when JK Rowling tried to write under a pseudonym when she was publishing her, uh, her thriller books. Mm-hmm. 
Um, she was unmasked in about 30 minutes by a supercomputer in, uh, in, a, in a, I can't remember the name of the university, but they just ran her her thing, her thing, writing through a supercomputer and said, oh, this matches up with the writing style of Harry Potter, it's J.K. Rowling, and then she just admitted it. Um, so you do need innovation. Like, it's possible to use that same technology to mask your unique writing style. Uh, I know people are working on voice modulators to change the way your voice yeah. sounds, and uh, obviously deepfake technology is getting very good. You can completely change your face, but there's still a lot of work to be done there to make it totally foolproof. Right. And I think that's what conservative tech entrepreneurs should be working on. Well, this is the other frustrating thing, right? Is like, And I'm sure this frustrates you often, too, is so much of the Republican slash conservative response to big tech is grift. It's like, we're building a conservative so-and-so. It's like, do you know how to code? No, I've lived in Northern Virginia my whole life. I work in politics. It's like, great. <laughs> your your platform's not going to be very good. <laughs> it's it's going to suck. Well, and here's the other thing. Like, Getter, right? This most recent, like, uncancelable platform. Uh, I think there was... The, I still haven't been able to log in. I tried. Yeah, the, <laughs> the day after it was launched, there was a story in Politico about how it was actually, like, it was formerly a Chinese platform that was just purchased by former, like, Trump officials and... And they started running it um, and, and did like a little bit of front end development on it. But for the most part, it was still like literally a Chinese social media site. Yeah. yeah. In fairness, I think it was Chinese dissidents that ran it. But, mm -hmm. you know, I haven't looked too deeply into it. I do have a Getter account. I know some people involved with it who I like. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a Twitter clone. And, you know, I'm glad that the Twitter clones exist, that they're out there. But uh, ultimately, they'll... They're, they're not going to be much more than a conservative ghetto. They won't get you access to those those on-the-fence people that you need if you're trying to, you know, win political campaigns long-term yeah. and persuade people to come over to your side. Yeah. That's why you need, like, regulation and standards that go across the entire industry and apply right. to the big platforms, too. Right. So, so this is actually, this is where I think we get into a competing goods question, right, is that I, I wrote a long time ago, and it was before I had actually, like, fully realized that the only answer to big tech is regulation, that there is no libertarian answer to any of these questions. I wrote about why I was pessimistic that new social media platforms along the lines of Facebook and Twitter would emerge. Um, and there's a couple of layers to the issues, but the one that I often think about a lot is the early adopter problem, which is that and this is, I think, less the case now because the amount of people who are dissatisfied with the mainstream platforms may have reached a critical mass by now, especially if President Trump were to get on one. But if you're in 2017 and a new platform comes around, all the people that are going to have an appetite and a market desire to be on that platform are the people who are some combination of banned or censored from the other platforms, which doesn't make for like the most pleasant seed audience for a new platform. It's 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 the sort of thing where you're going to have a lot of political discussion and it's going to be an interesting space, but it's not the sort of place people are going to go to post like pictures of their kids and their like golden retriever. Yeah. How do you think about the like, I mean, I'm just calling it the early adopter problem. Um, that's an interesting. That's an interesting question. You can't actually build a uh, a new social network unless, like, uh, like a broad based social network that appeals to a wide group of people without either uh, doing something new and innovative that the other companies are not doing, or uh, having that you know diverse set of people from the beginning, uh, you know, from different backgrounds and have different perspectives. Uh, so you've got to do either one of the one or the other, in my view. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing about. Um, I mean, Parler even, you know, gained a pretty sizable 
and again, that's all relative, but I mean, I had people in my family who are not super politically active who like joined it because it was like something new. That's but why it, they had to nuke it because it could have actually. Right. Been. So that's exactly my point is that it goes to show that it doesn't even matter if you clone something else or build something else. If you don't have the infrastructure to maintain it, I mean, they can literally just pull you down right now um, until we have our own systems like built out to actually host things on the internet uh we're gonna be in big trouble and i particularly when we get into like the app store debate right like is there anyone we know in the conservative movement right now that would build that would and could build a conservative app store that would actually be widely adopted no um so there is this freedom phone project that has a sort of uncensored app store um and that's Key, out there now. Keywords were widely adopted. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Wide, widely adopted. That's, that's the thing. So Google and Apple control 99% of the smartphone operating system uh, market worldwide. So if they want to block access to their you know, smartphones, they can. Google is a little more difficult because you can sort of get around the App Store blocks. You can't on Apple. So Apple can effectively ban you from uh, from all of their uh, all of their phones. Yeah. Um, I, you don't have to answer this if you aren't aware yet either, and I haven't had a chance to look into it. But is this Freedom Phone thing a grift? Is it real? Like, do you, do you know yet if it's a legit operation? Uh, I know. I've, I've tried the Freedom Phone. It, it seems like a fairly quality product. You know, there've been reports that it's made in Shenzhen. Uh, <laughs> you know, Apple makes their phones in China too. Yeah, you know, the, the, the jury's out. I'll wait and see. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it just and 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 this this I guess gets to another interesting question, right? Is part of the problem that the way that we're thinking about is is that we need a conservative X. Like, it, are are we setting ourselves up for ghettoizing, you know, the user base of of these new platforms by even framing it that way? Well, no, I think uh, I think you know platforms that are marketed to conservatives do serve a purpose, which is that they're uh, you know you you're talking about you know unpleasant experiences, you know, shocking experiences. That you, if you if you have a particular kind of user base, you know, a perfect example would be 4chan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 4chan I would not say has a broad appeal yeah. to like um, or a certain parts of 4chan don't have a, have a have a broad political appeal. They're very targeted at one side of the political aisle, but they have proved to be extraordinary staging grounds for like uh, for uh, for activism and for the, you know the birth of new political movements mm-hmm. so you know platforms like parlor while they might you know purely conservative that's where people can go to organize uh, when you with organize whether that's organizing events or organizing online campaigns mm-hmm. where they do go out then to other platforms and to uh, and talk to other people who aren't in their circle. Right. So that's that's I think is the purpose of uh, purely conservative devices and purely conservative apps. Yeah. So it's part of an ecosystem, right? It's that you know this is this is the small tent that there will be ideas and 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 you know plans incubated that can be then used in the big tent but the problem is and this is why ultimately regulation is necessary not just build your own is that if they have created a hard firewall between what happens in uh in you know the corners of the internet they don't like versus on the mainstream platforms then then that step will never happen yes the real danger coming down the road is like link banning yeah uh, so it's something they've already done i think with uh, with infowars on facebook unless i'm mistaken about that they certainly experimenting with link banning at the very least mm-hmm. but uh you know one of the great things about say rumble is that you know people will take a rumble link and, and use it much the same way that they would a youtube link they'll share right. it on various other platforms right 
Um, and if the tech com there's nothing currently stopping the tech companies from uh, just saying, okay, Rumble links are banned. Yeah. Well, so in terms of like the, you know, conservative innovation and building, uh, you know, conservative versions of things, I'm almost left wondering when it comes to social media, like how much more room is there to go? Like innovation wise, you know, if, if, if we're not going to build a conservative version of something and we're going to decide to to innovate and to make something new that people actually want to be on. I can't really think of like anything that's not already filled by what's out there. I mean, the only, the only way that I could see this going is, and again, this is just a shot in the dark, but I don't know if you've noticed the way that, um, white girls like to do Peloton together right now. They're like, (laughs) they're like get together on video, you know, and are doing stuff like that. I think, Maybe, especially with pandemic, we'll get more into people wanting to do activities together virtually. But I'm almost left wondering, like, if are are we running out of runway here to, like, actually innovate and, and build something of our own that isn't just a copycat of the left? Well, this is why I'm increasingly interested in anonymity, because I think there's a lot of innovation to be done there, both in terms of face-changing technology, voice-changing technology. Uh, there's also a type of technology I'm very interested in called zero-knowledge proof. That's when you can prove certain things about your identity without proof, without uh, people knowing the, uh, the, 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 auth- the authentication or the, uh, the, the verifying document that, uh, that proves it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, if I want to prove that I'm uh, over 21 without mm-hmm. showing you my driver's license, you can do that technologically because you can have a verifier that verifies your driver's license, you then that sends a signal to your digital wallet that you get a little like like a verified check mark mm-hmm. saying, okay, you're over twenty one, mm-hmm. but everyone else doesn't need to see your name or your address or your driver's license. Right. And, and the platform doesn't retain it either. And the platform doesn't retain it. And you can make you can make that even more radical because say you could prove you're a uh, you're a Stanford or a Harvard PhD without without um, telling people your name or your field or anything else that might identify you, then suddenly you have a massive anonymous network of people who can verify things about themselves, verify their authority on certain topics, but still be shielded by anonymity. Right. That's a, that would be, I think, a very powerful network for dissidents. Right. And 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 so, I mean, I, maybe you'll disagree with me here, but, but I think that you do need some of that, right? Especially if you're talking about questions of political speech, if there are discussions happening in an online platform about what the political future of the United States should be, uh, I, I would like to know that the people I'm conversing with, even if it is anonymous, are American citizens, for instance, or UP residents of the United States. Because if it's me chatting with 4,000 Macedonian teenagers who are yelling at me, like that's <laughs> the, the utility there is limited. And then, you know, Indeed. So- and that's, that's how they, the establishment discredits online discussions yeah. as well. They say, oh, it's all just foreign bots. Right. Which is obviously not true, but but there is probably something in between, right? Which is that, especially for matters of political discussion, um, you know, I, I believe in national sovereignty and I believe in borders. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if investing time and resources into a political discussion online, the one benefit of, of, of personalized social media where, where it's not anonymous is that I can at least tell that I'm dealing with another person who's in the United States or part of the same polity and that... I'm having a productive discussion with another citizen of the same country as opposed to a foreigner. You know, no offense, Alan, but it seems like we'd fix a lot of our problems if we didn't let foreigners talk about our politics anymore. <laughs> um, and then the other you, side You of say this. that, and yet Britain doesn't fly BLM flags on its embassies yet. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Operative word. Give it time. Word. Give it time. 
Um, and then the other side of this is I think age verification does matter. I mean, you know, we're very socially conservative here in American moment. I, I would like for there to be a little bit, you know, tighter screws on like, you know, violent pornography being shown to 12 year olds on the internet like that's probably really bad we're messing up children uh in, or you can in, just make it illegal yeah but, that too. <laughs> one of the points i uh, often uh, make and it's very revealing is that google will allow you to opt out of their obscenity filter you can turn off safe search yeah twitter will allow you to opt out of their obscenity filter you can turn off the uh, the sensitive content filter but they won't allow you to opt out of their filters on disinformation hate speech <laughs> kind of shows you what they're more concerned about in terms yeah. of protecting people from content right mm. yeah they don't they don't care that little timmy is seeing you know smut they care that you know uh a free citizen may see that you know anthony fauci is actually a moron <laughs> um so i you you've done one of the reasons that we admire you a lot and I've followed you for a long time, Alan, is that you've done actual journalism, which on the right, there's not as much of, you know, a lot of people like to be hot take merchants. They like to be opinion writers, but you've actually done the hard work of reporting and uncovering information specifically at these big tech companies. I want you to walk us through a couple of the really big stories that you have uh, uncovered that, that were really precedent setting in terms of getting the right to take these issues seriously. Um, because, you know, for a long time, we've known that there were these, you know, that, that we had a sense that there were problems with censorship. Um, but ultimately, people had the, uh, especially bad faith actors had the veil of ignorance where they could see, well, where's the proof? You found the proof. Uh, walk us through, for example, what you discovered uh, that Google is doing, the tape, the good censor document. Tell us about these stories. Sure. So the uh, the James Damore controversy when Google fired one of its employees for disagreeing with progressive narratives uh, was really kind of a turning point because that led to lots of Google employees coming forward to me anonymously as one of the uh, few conservative tech writers and saying, look, it's really bad inside Google. We have, you know, you know, this extra, this crazy, out-of-control woke culture, and they started sending me information from inside the company. And that's how it all started. I'd say the biggest uh, scoop I got through that process was a anonymous Dropbox link. Uh, I still don't know who sent it to me, containing a one-hour video of uh, Google's top executive team, including Sergey Brin, Larry Page, the co-founders, Sundar Pichai, the current CEO, various other VPs, uh, a couple of days after the 2016 election, addressing company employees in a global town hall meeting. And uh, this was called the Google Tape. And uh, we released the Google Tape at Breitbart uh, just a few days after President Trump first uh, started denouncing Google for biased search results. And everyone was calling him the conspiracy theory, saying, oh, no, Google's just a neutral tech company. That's when we dropped the Google Tape. And obviously, it shows Sergey Brin and Larry Page and all of these people just absolutely distraught at the Trump election. Uh, you know, you had Sergey Brin calling it offensive, but more than that, they were plotting how about how to respond. And you had uh, Kent Walker, who's still their head of uh, public policy, saying uh, he wants to make the populist movement a quote-unquote blip in history. And you had Sondar Pichai talking about how they're going to use their uh, deploy their technology to fight disinformation and to educate low-information voters. So they were planning it all out uh, just a couple of days after Trump won the election. It just shows you what a turning point that election was. Um, and we saw it even, uh, you know, laid out in even more detail. And, you know, my second big Google scoop, which was the Good Censor. Uh, the Good Censor was an 80-page briefing document prepared by Google, which admits that Google shifted towards censorship. That's Google's words, not mine, after the 2016 election. And uh, to get back to what we were saying earlier about protecting journalists from competition, it also laments the fact that um, 
quote-unquote have-a-go commentators can compete on an equal playing field with the, with the New York Times. Um, I would actually disagree with that assessment. Have Even before the age of online censorship, have-a-go commentators were not competing on an equal playing field with the New York Times because the New York Times has millions and millions of dollars and random bloggers don't. So the New York Times is losing even with that advantage. Um, so those those are two of the big stories. Uh, I could go through more. There are many other examples if you're interested in the other ones, like the Facebook hate agents list or the uh, or the YouTube search blacklist. I can talk about those too. But yeah, no, I, I, I'd love to hear about it. And we, our producer just uh, brought by your ah, book yes. um, that has a, a, a lot of these stories in it, which we recommend that everyone purchase. Um, uh, but yeah, no, t- tell us more of these stories. I guess let's go through the big companies one by one. You just described uh, what Google is doing, what, what's going on at Facebook, what's Facebook doing? Uh, Facebook, I got uh, not quite as many scoops as I did at Google. Uh, there's a reason for that. Google had a very open culture, workplace culture. Almost anyone in the company could talk to anyone else in the company on their internal message boards, which is very conducive to leaks. It's actually the opposite of Apple's culture, where which is very segmented, and each of the departments are closed off and don't communicate with one another. You don't see a lot of leaks from Apple. Uh, Facebook, however, I did get their list of so-called hate agents, which is a, a literal list they keep inside the company of um, prominent political individuals, uh, mainly right-wingers, although there were some you know, left-wingers like uh, Louis Farrakhan on there as well, uh, that they considered to be so-called hate agents. And that list included, uh, or potential hate agents, and that list included you know, people like Paul Joseph Watson, it included uh, Candace Owens as one of the potential hate agents, it included Bridget Gabriel of Act for America, all these mainstream conservative activists, uh, many, many people were on that. Yeah, I was about to say, what do we got to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you haven't made it until you're on the Facebook hate agents yeah. list. We're actually probably already on <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, it. That was a big Facebook scoop. Uh, YouTube, uh, another important one. Uh, YouTube's a real tragedy because YouTube, um, y- yes, you know, blogging was disrupting like print newspapers, but YouTube was disrupting something far more powerful. It was disrupting cable news. Right. I mean, that's how I got involved in politics was watching a bunch of naughty YouTube videos, like very, very candidly. I mean, that's yes. that's how it happened for me. And and that algorithm that you were talking about, you know, the benefits of big tech. I mean, I, I can I literally remember the chronology of things. It was before I became religious. I was watching, uh, you know, videos about atheism. And that eventually took me to videos about social justice warriors, eventually took me to videos about immigration and foreign policy and it just went down the line and that's that's how that happened for me yes. um, they hate that YouTube, <laughs> they hate that youtube pipeline yeah you had counter counter actual counter extremism think tanks that were set up to a uh, fight yeah. to like analyze out al- the way al-qaeda used the yeah. internet saying this youtube uh, algorithm is creating a pipeline of right-wing extremists the shorenstein center uh, at harvard's a big one right yes There's one yeah. at, the yeah. da- data lab at stanford is another one yeah yeah, yeah. there was yeah. one in the uk as well uh, i forget i forget the name like counter extremism think tank yeah, I always tell people that my um, the beginning of my radicalization pipeline story uh, started with um, Andrew Clavin and ended with Spencer Clavin. Clavin <laughs> to Clavin. Um, yeah. But I, like, I'm still an avid YouTube enjoyer, but it's kind of crazy how bad it's gotten over the years, especially like because of COVID. I mean, the second if you're on it, like on your, if you're on the app on your iPhone, like you'll have the recommended thing on top. And then the 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 second row is always like information about COVID-19 um, and it'll be like the first three videos will all be like combating misinformation about vaccine. Like it'll it'll be all this stuff that they're trying to get you to think. It's not just 
oh, here's how many people died. It's like, here's why you should get vaccinated six times and like wear like nine masks on your eyes and your face. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's crazy. Yeah. So COVID was a godsend for the tech companies and for journalists because it really allowed them to accelerate this panic that created about disinformation, which which that created long before COVID. Well, and it gave them a casus belly to ramp up their censorship in a really serious way, right? Because the gamer was mean to the journal lady is a lot less serious um, on its own face uh, a problem than, you know, uh, what was a worldwide pandemic. Um, and it just gave them the vehicle to to ramp up their censorship in a very dramatic way. What what was the, uh, have there been sort of, just, is it just differences in degree that you're seeing with the censorship during the COVID era? Or are, are we looking at differences in kind entirely? I would say mainly differences uh, in degree. Um, I, uh, frankly, I don't think and this is this goes to Facebook as well. We were talking about them earlier, and the and the hate agents list. I don't think uh, it's it's difficult for I don't it, it would be difficult for the tech companies to do anything more radical than what they started doing just before COVID. I think, which is when they said we're not just going to monitor behavior on our platform; we're going to monitor behavior off our platform as well. We're going to look at the speeches you're giving. We're going to look at um, what events you're going to, even if you don't mention them on Facebook. And if you look at the uh, the Facebook hate agents list that we released. Uh, they were doing that. They were monitoring what people were doing off Facebook. Um, and Twitter has a similar policy now where they're going to look at your offline behavior as well as your online behavior. Yeah. Wow. You should delete the social media apps from your phone. It's like, <laughs> listeners, please just do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that gets to an interesting question, right? I mean, what is the role of an individual person in a regime like this, you know, vis-a-vis -vis social media? Um, uh, is it to, to stay on these platforms? Is it to stay off? Like, how do you think about it? Obviously, I mean, I, I'm very uninterested in the sort of conservatives that just say, well, if you don't like it, you should get off the platform. It's like, screw you. You're you are you are contributing to words like political dimitude for the entire right. But but what is the recommend? I mean, what would you say to your you know family members, for instance, about these platforms? I would adopt. Uh, well, for conservatives, you've got to have a multifaceted approach. You need to use alternative platforms and especially anonymous. I would encourage everyone to like get on anonymous platforms. You've got to use anonymous platforms and alternative platforms, conservative run platforms to organize, to find like minded people, to have those debates about, you know, which direction the conservative movement should go in. But you also need to be on Twitter and Facebook to talk to the normies, especially during elections, and to persuade people of your views, because you're not going to persuade anyone if you're just talking to an echo chamber. So you need you need both. You mm -hmm. need like the staging ground, the place where you organize, and but you also need to go out into the public square, which is Twitter, which is Facebook and YouTube, to yeah. get your message across. The exception, I would say, is Rumble, because on Rumble, you can make videos and then send the links around on Facebook yeah. and Twitter. Well, and Rumble actually goes to, it's a great example of what I was talking of not being what I was talking about earlier, which is, you know, grifty alternative platforms that are basically just white labels of like Chinese products that like, you know, are run by politicos like Rumble seems to me and maybe correct me if I'm wrong to be a serious company with serious technological talent and ability behind it that is interested in like playing the long game to become a replacement to existing platforms in a way that's scalable. Am I am I wrong about that? They're certainly doing a better job than uh, than many other platforms. Um, uh, it's going to be difficult for them to eclipse YouTube in terms of what it can offer creators in ad revenue, but uh, they're certainly doing a, doing a heck of a job, and I do support them. Yeah. Um, I will say, you know, Chinese platforms, uh, the big mistake that TikTok made was 
it wasn't that my, my objection to TikTok is not that they're a Chinese-run platform. It's that they hired content moderators from Silicon Valley. Yeah. I would much rather deal with a Chinese content moderator who says I'm not allowed to talk about Hong Kong or Tiananmen Square because, frankly, those issues aren't particularly relevant to me uh, than a Silicon Valley content moderator who tells me I can't talk about Black Lives Matter or feminism. Right. I mean, this is uh, this is the Darren Beatty point, right, which is that, you know, taboo arbitrage, right? Like, yeah, I, I don't really need to post a Winnie the Pooh meme, but... I would like to talk about like major salient political issues in the American Republic, like, and if yeah. that involves using a Chinese platform, I yes. suppose every, every Republican staffer should read Darren yeah. uh, Darren Beatty's Twitter feed, right? And I think a lot of them do. You'd be amazed. Um, and but but I will say I I think that there is a case against that as well, right? Which is that what China China is going to quickly well I'll put it this way. Chinese platforms that are hosting and Chinese servers that are hosting Americans' data. Um, can then be weaponized against Americans themselves in terms of blackmail. So, like, if you have inopportune DMs that you've had with someone, um, and 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 China um, has some reason to want to blackmail you, they can then use that. I mean, is that a serious concern that people should be worried about? It's a concern, yeah. but I mean, I, I'm worried about Twitter and Facebook and Google. Aren't, yeah. aren't we worried about them blackmailing people? Sure, sure. It's a both and thing, and that, that's the thing is like I I, I hate both versions of this discourse, uh, which is you know the like the new Republican thing you're seeing now, which is that, you know, those darn Chinese are the cause of all our problems while completely ignoring our own ruling class. Well, at the same time, I do think that they are just geostrategic competitor to the United States. And it probably is a really bad idea if, you know, uh, an entire generation of, say, you know, uh, government officials are, you know, have their data hosted by a foreign regime that is contra our interest that they can then use to blackmail those agents. Like, it's probably a bad idea. That's a fair point. And if, if you're, uh, you should never really talk about talk about anything sensitive, ultra sensitive online. Uh, you should try and, you know, do, go old school as much as possible and, you know, talk to people in person about, you know, sensitive things. Mm. But uh, if you're going to talk about sensitive things, then yes, use secure platforms, use ProtonMail, use uh, Signal. And, you know, even those platforms, are they completely secure from intelligence agencies? I just probably, assume the CIA can get prob- it. <laughs> probably not, but at least they have disappearing messages. Yeah. And ProtonMyer has disappearing emails now, yeah. which is very uh, very useful. Yeah. And that will at least protect you from, you know, future future doxing if the person yeah. you're emailing turns yeah. into a leftist later on. Yeah, all of us are on <laughs> ProtonMail at this table, I think. Um, so I guess my, my final question that I'm interested in is um, – it has been a pet peeve of mine being in Washington over the last few months, uh, participating in the conversation on the right, because all of a sudden, all of the think tanks, activist groups, politicians that spent the last couple of years putting their fingers in their ears and screaming la 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 as they got Google donations when it came to the issue of big tech are like, well, now it's time to reform Section 230, which is like, <laughs> it's like very Johnny come lately. And I find myself almost uninterested in that conversation at this point, because I'm trying to think like I think you were thinking five years ago, what's coming next? What are the things that you're worried about that the nexus of, you know, government power and corporate power, the regime is going to do to American patriots? Well, I want to address two parts of those questions. First of all, what Republicans are doing now, and then I'll get to your second more important question. I'm increasingly reminded of the same way that people used to say a few years ago, oh, the the free market's going to fix everything. People these days saying, oh, antitrust is going to fix everything without directly addressing the issue of censorship. Mm -hmm. Um, 
antitrust might, I'm not implacably opposed to it and might have some good, uh, good consequences. I particularly like the interoperability stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be useful. But uh, I, I always like to find out, you know, if people support antitrust as an end in itself or as a means to solve the censorship problem, yep. which in turn solves the massive cultural problem. So the question I like to ask is, if YouTube and Facebook came to you and said, okay, we got it wrong over the past five years, we're going we're gonna to go back to the way we were in 2015, there's going to be our rules forever, we're going to set them in stone, uh, but uh, we want to be the monopolies. Uh, do you take that deal? Would you? I would. Interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, so, so this goes to... So I, I have been similarly skeptical of antitrust, not because I don't think antitrust is a good idea, but because I think there's a very weird game going on here, which is that people want people. We had Will Chamberlain on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and, and he he basically made this point, which is that the problem with Section 230, the problem with antitrust is that conservatives are so reticent to pass a new law that they, uh, you know, don't actually want that, that they just want to use the existing tools at hand as opposed to seriously engaging with the substance of the problem that they have, which is these com- companies are systematically oppressing one political, uh, you know, part of the United States. And so I may support antitrust because Google's corporate consolidation is a very, very bad thing. But anyone who thinks that, you know, five YouTubes uh, in the regime we live in right now are going to suddenly be more conservative friendly is smoking something. Precisely. <laughs> and, you know, if you, go, if you go on Bing and Yahoo, you'll find search results that are better than, than, uh, than Google's. You'll find more Breitbart links. But that's because no one cares about Bing. Yeah. If Bing became comparable influence to Google, they'd be subject to the same, exactly the same pressures that Google was, and you know they'd probably behave in exactly the same way. So you got to distinguish between people who want to use antitrust as you know a big hammer, a means to an end to solve this massive censorship problem, um, and people who like see it as some kind of end in itself. Right. When I think antitrust ignores <clears throat> two key points, the first being that. I mean, frequently when this was, you know, enforced in the early 1900s, I don't know if you've seen that chart, but like the company got broken up and then like back in 2000, they all like ended up back together in the form. It was like Bell to AT&T or whatever. Uh, But then the second point is that the people in charge, the people at the wheel, they want to censor us regardless like it does not matter whether you you know break up their preferred tool of doing it they're going to find another way and the only way that this is going to stop is if you take away all the tools and if you replace the people in charge yes you have to directly address the censorship question not try and address it in a roundabout way with uh with with antitrust or interoperability, even though those things, you know, might might have some positive consequences for the competitors. And, you know, Clarence Thomas, I encourage everyone, uh, especially if you're involved in policy, to read Clarence Thomas's opinion in uh, Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute, where he outlines the legal steps you can take to deal with censorship. And, you know, it's you either do common carrier regulation, which you can do on a state level, you don't do the federal government, public accommodation regulation, again, you can do that on a state level, or just, you know, simple anti-discrimination rules. Right. And uh, some of the red states, you know, have had some interesting things on the way. Texas's tech bill, I think, is very good. It does go the common carrier route. Could have ha- uh, tougher penalties for the tech companies, uh, but it's it's a pretty good one to follow. I know the Texas people actually talk to people who, you know, know their stuff on the issue. 
Uh, Florida sadly did not take Clarence Thomas's advice and their law got struck down in court. But, you know, at least they tried. But the point is, you can you can deal with this issue. You can address it. You can even address it at the red state level, not at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to, like, use these complicated roundabout routes to come at the problem. Um, by the way, you, you, you mentioned what's coming down the, uh, down the road. I'll, I'll address that uh, quickly, I think. We talked about link banning. That's something to watch out for. And I, uh, I again, I again come back. And to, this is a version of, for instance, what they did with the New York Post article about Hunter Biden's laptop, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the other thing is financial censorship. We're seeing an uptick of that. I think just today, PayPal said they're going to be working more closely with the Anti-Defamation League to track payments. Um, good news for crypto holders, I should think. <laughs> um, yeah, crypto's up this week. Crypto is up this week. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. Um, that's that's going to come down the road, and I think. Conservative innovators really need to get ahead of um, of unmasking technologies and find a way to make impervious anonymity. Because mm-hmm. when 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 that is accomplished, that I think will be a real game changer politically and for you know for the for the uh, foreseeable future. Because I think these battles are going to go on for a very long time. Right. No, I I think that that's that's exactly right. And. Um... And and I really appreciate the the clarity with which you've been thinking about these issues, right? Because the 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 antitrust thing is a perfect example of it. It just seems to be the wrong solution. I will say, mm-hmm. I, I'd be curious. Well, to see I would say I'm, I'm not implacably opposed to antitrust. Like I said, they might have these these bills that are coming out. They're not as bad as the JCPA. The JCPA yeah. is, is a disaster, yeah. and no one should support it. Yeah, antitrust. I think the jury's out on that. We'll see where that goes. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's not uh, it's not going to fix the problem because it doesn't directly address the problem. And I like all these people say you know it's a bipartisan thing. Well then, where's why doesn't it directly address the issue that matters most to Republicans on big tech, which is content moderation? Right, right. Uh, the the one thing that I I think about when it comes to the antitrust thing, and this goes to why I'm actually somewhat agnostic on what the answer to uh, a lot of this is, because. To me, the reason we've gotten to the status quo in American life is because if you are a corporate CEO or if you're the board of a major traded company, you do not take the right seriously. Because uh, well, the way the way the balance of power in American life works is that if you are a left-wing culture warrior, you make a demand of a corporation. In most cases, they'll do what you say. If they don't do what you say, those cultural grievances will be laundered into political grievances that are championed by democratic politicians, which will be then uh, turned into laws that are used to economically hurt the corporation or industry at hand. Meanwhile, the parallel process on the right is that if these companies piss off right-wing cultural activists or even just normal people, uh, the right's politically elected leaders give them a tax cut. <laughs> and Yeah, it's literally like, like who... They literally say, "Who cares?" Like yeah. I don't know if you remember during the whole, um, the whole uh, like gay marriage debate, right? Back in like 2012, uh, and Target started coming out like super in favor of this stuff. Remember the big Target boycott? Like churches across the like everyone said, almost everyone on the right was like, "Yeah, we're not gonna go to Target," and Target was like you're not coming anyway <laughs> like it makes yeah. no difference to yeah. us right and, this, and now yeah. they have like whole like like pride sections in their stores you yeah. know yeah and you know the, the people who run these companies are not like you know just you know unthinking um economic robots 
I mean, the CEO of Gillette, even after the company lost millions and millions of dollars because of the boycott, because of their, you know, woke anti-masculine ads, said, uh, you know, I think it was worth it. I think, you know, losing all that money was worth it. And uh, yeah, you're right. Republicans should not be afraid of imposing, of really punishing, you know, you know, these anti-American, anti-Western civilization companies. Uh, But I'll, I'll disagree with you slightly in that I don't think these companies, if these companies are afraid, they're afraid less of the government than they are of the media. Mm. especially in the case of big tech, because Mm. whenever companies like Facebook and Google didn't go fast enough in terms of censoring hate speech and misinformation, the media would whip up these enormous advertiser boycotts that cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. They didn't even need the government to impose pain on Mm. these companies. But but is that true? I mean, I'm thinking maybe this is the case in the United States and and Europe. But for instance, in Australia, Google was more than willing to just pull the plug on big media when they didn't get their way. Right. I mean, they, they, they just they just shut off their news section. Yes, and that was actually good. You know, if that if that if that was the approach of big tech, uh, if that was a consistent approach of big tech around the world. Screw the media. You know, I'd be the most pro big tech guy ever. <laughs> big media, big media is way worse than big tech, and big media is the problem that big tech was almost designed to solve. Mm. Uh, and it's a, it's a shame. I want the creation of big tech to be completely unleashed. Yeah. But unfortunately, the people in charge of these companies spent the last five years trying to kill their own creation because they and the establishment are now afraid of it. Right. And they have more money than they know what to do with. So they're not actually being held to account for market mechanisms either when it comes to any of these problems. Uh, Alan, where can people uh, follow your work? Where can they learn more about you? Where can they follow you on social media? I want to make fun of your social media handle for a second. (laughs) (laughs) And where can they buy your book? Yeah. Uh, So you can buy my book, uh, Deleted. Uh, Go to deletedbook.com. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, the full title is Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election, which, of course, they did do. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Libertarian Blue. I'm unfortunately stuck with that handle because <laughs> uh, changing it is a complicated business on Twitter. If you want to not be keep your verified checkmark and not be shadow banned, uh, you can also find me um, on, uh, on Gab at AB, uh, on Parler at Alan B, and on Getter at Alan. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Alan, and thank you for everything you do. Good to be on. This week, we wanted to talk about a piece written by Senator Marco Rubio in the New York Post called Corporations That Undermine American Values Don't Deserve GOP Support. And really, I just want to talk about that concept entirely, which is that you do not have to be a slave to corporate America if you are on the American right anymore. We live in a new era, and this is something that, you know, we've obviously been beating the drum about a lot at American Moment. I believe we're the first right of center organization to include a line decrying corporate power in our core statement of priorities. We live in a fundamentally different era and the threats to liberty, to freedom, to the American way of life, to order in Western society are not just overbearing governments. They are now the biggest corporations that see themselves as fully post-national, fully post-American. And we need to break the chains of corporate slavery that we have been operating under for the last 50 years in the American right and chart a path forward that that puts them back in their place as as subservient to the common good, not the determiners of it. Well, I think the other interesting thing about Rubio's piece, I would almost take it a level further, right? Uh, Not just 
that corporations that undermine American values don't deserve GOP support, but they don't deserve American support. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if corporations are not supporting your country, shipping your jobs to, to foreign countries and importing cheap labor uh, to decrease your wages. I mean, it's, I would argue that they don't deserve anyone's support. Um, now, they, they you know, may feel that they have a right to do business in this country and that they have a right to do their, you know, conduct their business that way. Um, let's see how far they can really get under that assumption. Yeah. If they would like to operate under the uh, strictures of governance in other countries across the world they're more than welcome to try but where they get to have their cake and eat it too where they enjoy the uh, fairly laissez-faire system of American governance while also uh, being completely solicitous of foreign regimes that's a setup that we should no longer tolerate and it's a it's a balance of power that I don't think very many Americans are that interested in anymore either uh, this is again a concept that cannot be repeated enough we we do not have to do what these corporations ask they are hurting america they're hurting the republic on a fairly daily basis and uh this mindset is, I think, changing. The problem is, is the people who have built a career on essentially doing whatever corporate America wants for the last 50 years. Uh, that has to change. I think that generational paradigm shift will be a big part in ensuring that happens. But some of it has to be done forcefully. We have to say, as a younger generation of activists and ideological entrepreneurs, that the people who brought us to this point, where these corporations think that they run the country as opposed to the people of this country running it, uh, those people have to be politely retired. Yeah, well said. I 100% agree. Uh, you know, maybe not as much emphasis on the word polite, but yeah. <laughs> it can, listen, it can be acrimonious and extremely embarrassing, and I bet in many cases it will be. Yeah, I think that that will inevitably happen as well. Uh, thank you guys for listening to yet another episode of Moment of Truth. We're really getting into the steam of things here. I think we've crossed, you know, about 25 or so episodes now. Uh, we're, we're, we're six months into basically doing this podcast. It's a pretty exciting time. Lots of fantastic guests down the pipeline, and we feel pretty, uh, pretty happy with ourselves in the podcast uh, backlog that we have. So if you're a relatively new listener, we always do these in a way that stays as timeless as possible. We want you to go back and be able to listen to episode three and still get, you know, 99% as much out of it as you would have gotten when it released on the day it did. So go back and listen to the backlog if you have long drives ahead of you, you're doing some summer travel, uh, or you just have time to kill. Uh, uh, enjoy uh, Nick and I's melodious voices washing over you as you uh, think about how dire the regime is and how bad things are. And uh, without further ado, uh, we'll see you next week. Make sure to rate and subscribe. Uh, ask a question in your five-star review if you'd like to answer it on the show. And have a fantastic week. We'll see you next time. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms. And you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.